Hello, my name's Jack. Welcome to my Throwback Attack. This is the podcast where I talk to some really cool people about retro TV. So I'm pleased to have with me someone I've been a huge fan of for years. He's known for writing and performing in the Rocky Horror Show, and as well as being the original Maze Master in the uh, Crystal Maze, it's Reckless Rick, aka Richard O'Brien. Hello, hello. <laughs> where did that Where did that nickname come from, Reckless Rick? I, 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 I was on the spur of the moment. I was standing on that that deck before the the Crystal Dome, you know, and uh, and the cameras pointed at me and. And like anybody else, um, I, I, I was just as nervous as anybody else would be when the cameras were pointing at me because I'd never, I'd never been in front of a camera as myself uh, before. Because all, I, when you when you're acting, you're in character. There's other people's lines, generally speaking, and you're you're performing uh, in in a, an act of artifice. And when you're looking, when you're playing, when I did Crystal Maze, I was I had to step into myself and be myself in front of the camera. But so I, um, I and, and nerves and whatnot. And I just came up, just spat, and I said, "Hi, reckless Rick of the Crystal Maze here." You know, I, why I've got no idea, but um, it seemed quite funny at the time. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, don't, I don't know. It's a lot of a lot of it, a lot of the Crystal Maze it was spontaneous. Um, and uh, you know, you you sort it out afterwards. For instance, on the crystal maze, um, all all that stuff of me talking to camera, looked to, to the audience at home. You know, when their backs were turned, I never yeah. talked spoke to the audience while they were facing me. But as minute they were engaged in the in the game and away from it, I could go, I could go to one of the look at one of the cameramen because they were outside. This is it, first of all, it happened, the, the cameraman said, "What are we supposed to be shooting, Richard? The backs of their heads." And and on, the, on that first series, of course, the, the producers were all in the in the control van, looking at these different monitors of all the different cameramen, and they were watching the game, not the outside of the game. And there was a cap, one of the cameramen outside, two cameramen outside, ready to pick them up when they come out or go. You know, go in and come out. And his name was Jeff, and I'd say, "Come over here, Jeff. I haven't been well today." Oh, I've had a dreadful day. Mumsy's been, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I just started nattering until I made him laugh. And I'd see the camera start to shake on his shoulder and go back to the game. They never knew I was doing that on that first series because they weren't watching me. They were watching the game, quite rightly. And when they went to edit the, that first series together, they discovered this outside stuff that I was doing. And which they and they kept the best of it, you know, that was 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 entertaining, and they got rid of the rest because I was babbling. And uh, and then the next series, they said we want more of that actually because it, I, what happened was looking directly into the camera, you break through the fourth wall, yeah, and you go directly into the into the sitting room where people are, and they feel as if that you're talking directly to them. And uh, and that's, it makes a con connection. And the strange thing was also it makes them complicit, me and them complicit against the players. And and it was a, it was it became me and the audience, uh, um, you know, looking at the players as opposed to just the audience looking at the players and me. And uh, it was it was a it was just a ha one uh, another happy accident. In fact, um, there was a chap. Um, the, the House of Cards um, actor, Scottish actor, I, I've, I've, I've forgotten his name for the moment, um, and I, I met him, I, we, we worked on a movie together in, in Australia called Dark City, and um, we went out for dinner one evening, he said, when I, um, when I was doing the House of Cards, he said, I, I channeled you doing the Crystal Maze, talking to the audience at home in that manner. And I said, well, that's very interesting because I almost channeled Frank Finley when he was playing Iago in that, in, in that movie with uh, Olivier, um, yeah. Othello, because that was marvellous. The asides on stage would have been to the audience, but on film, we've got the action going, and suddenly Frank turns around and looks straight into the camera and starts to talk about uh, Othello over there, and it becomes him and us, and, it, and, I, and it was, it's very powerful. The asides the camera were fantastic, and I think 
is what made the show that little bit more different than just a game show to something that you almost believed was an actual world that you lived in. I was, that was essential. That, well, that kind of was essential. We, 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 of course, you know, once again, it is all make-believe. Um, but uh, it, 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 getting going through the... the, the, the uh, we didn't understand. They did a dem demographic. Before the show was done, Crystal Bayes, the producers had already done um, um, Treasure Hunt and Challenge yeah. Annika. So they knew what they were doing as far as game shows were concerned. And in fact, Bullseye as well was one of their early mm -hmm. ones. So they kind of knew what they were doing in, in terms of giving um, game show entertainment to the public. <coughs> they knew their business. Um, and they did, did the, the demographic of, of the, who they thought their audience might be, it might appeal to. And they got, they got, they got that right. But they hadn't factored in children. And we had no idea that this show was going to appeal to kids. And, 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 and it did big time. And in fact, you know, the, after the first series, we were very, we became very much aware that the, the children were into it. And so the second series came around and they said, we should do a celebrity, you know, Christmas show for this, you know. And we all thought, you know, what do you do? You start up with, you start up with a wish list for your celebrities. Yeah. And you find you wind up with Jeremy Beadle or somebody. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, your ideas start good, but you, you finally wind up with, you know, the B list as opposed to the A list. And then someone said, we should do it with children. 20,000 children applied for that first that first Christmas um, show, and we're going to pick six from, from them. And my friends were coming up, and they got little kids, and we're going, oh, Richard, you don't think, you know, don't stop it, go away, just leave me alone. I'm not becoming involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> There's 20,000 yeah. kids have applied for this, but to play in this. Uh, and that was lovely. And uh, and it also it also helped me, because I, might, I had my own children at home watching as well. And sometimes, very often, when I would be talking down the into the into into the monitor, I would be talking directly to my children, and in which case it made my connection stronger than it would if I was just talking to a, a general mass of people. Um, and then, of course, when we got to Aztec, we kind of introduced little things in Aztec that the kids would like. Yeah. For instance, I said, "Why don't you put a? Why don't we bury a?" a, a, a um, a conquistador's helmet in the sand, you know. Yeah. Um, and the uh, and and so you know, I, it's buried in the sand, and I trip over it, and I go, "Oh, look at this! Oh, that's been left behind," you know. And make up a little story about it, which fascinated the children, yeah, because they feel that's you know that that's real. And I and I I got had a little wooden snake, you know, those little snakes that you you wind, yeah, I know what you're on about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back yeah. And forwards. And we put a little bit of fishing line on it, you know. And I'm standing, and it went over my foot. It's, it, it's irrelevant, but it just for the kids it added that little bit of extra spice to the whole thing. Yeah, it did. It did. Made it made it a more of a reality, uh, or pretend reality anyway. Um, I really enjoyed doing that program. The, the producers were terribly nice. Um, the, the other thing was the food on the set was exceptionally good. I'm, I used to put on a couple of pounds actually by the time we'd finished them. <laughs> filming the, the, yeah. the 13 episodes <laughs> <laughs> so um, after talking about Crystal Maze a little bit we'll, we'll get on to more of that a little later on I wanted to rewind back a little bit um, so you were born in England you moved to New Zealand as a child grew up in New Zealand and then moved back to England in the 1960s to pursue an acting career is that correct I think you might say that um, I have actually when I got on the boat to come back I had no idea uh, about where my life was going to go um, in fact, if they'd, if I'd woke, I went to bed before we even set sail because I didn't sail till about eleven o'clock at night. I, I, I went, went, put my head down, didn't even see it, you know, took the cast off and head out into the ocean. And um, when I wake up in the morning, we're at sea. But if they'd said, you know, if they come down and wake, woken me up and said, actually, we're not, it's not leaving, you've got to get off, I would have got off with the same kind of kind of indifference that I got on because I was at that point in my life I had no idea where, where I was headed and what was what was up, was up it was a, you know we get, get to us sometimes in our life when you were kind of like on a roundabout yeah looking for an exit and uh, you, you, we, we sort of mark time don't we our life isn't going anywhere we're just going around around the ra roundabout and then suddenly you know a signal comes up and you go you go down that road or fate takes you down that road off, off the, the roundabout so I got to England in um, 64, yeah, 64, 
stayed with my grandparents for a little while and I went up to London in 65 and started writing horses and movies. Um, um, th I did three movies that year and then at the end of that time, at the end of that year, they decided that um, they decided to start a stunt register. In other words, you had to be on the stunt register if you wanted to continue doing what I was doing in the movies. And I didn't really want to become a stuntman. I wanted to be an actor because I saw the actors and they got treated better than the stuntmen. You know, people bought them cups of coffee and brushed their, you know, the, the fluff off their jackets and all the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it so there, there we go. Um, what was the original question? Because I they feel as if I, you know, moved off something. Some. Oh, I said um, you you moved back over here to pursue an acting career, yeah. basically. I think I did. I think that's what I wanted, but I'd, I hadn't really, I don't think I'd actually set it out loud even in my head. Um, I just, um, I used to pick up, I bought, I had a guitar in London when I first got here and I used to walk around and, and knock on doors and say I write songs, can I, can I come and play them for you? Uh, I went to HMV Records and, uh, and turned up one morning about 10 o'clock in the morning, there was a receptionist behind the desk and she said, can I help you? And I said, I'm a, a singer-songwriter, I wonder if I could sing some songs. And she said, pardon? I said, well, you know, it's HMV Records, I wonder yeah. if I could <laughs> sing some songs. And she said, have you got an appointment? I said, no. She went, oh, uh, oh, and a man came in behind me and she said, oh, Dick, she went, Dick, um, this young man, could you, could you speak to this young man? He said, yes, what's up? And I told him the same thing. He said, well, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. That's, no, if it, but, in, well, since you're here, come into the office. And I went to his office and I sang him some songs. And he said, uh, well, actually, when I said, when I said that doesn't happen this way, he said, very oddly, a young man came in not so long ago, about six months or so ago, and uh, sang me a song. And now it's it's in the top 20 and it's called Everyone's Gone to the Moon. It was Jonathan King. Yeah. And he said, I sent him off to a, a music publisher called Joe Ron Caroni in Soho Square. And he said, I'm going to do the same thing with you. I was very lucky because this man, Dick, his name was Dick Rowe. And he'd turned down the Beatles. His, you know, and everybody said, well, you must, everybody does that from time to time, gets it wrong. But you couldn't get it much more wrong than that, could you? No, you, know? you couldn't, no. Um, and he, to, to bless him, he did, you know, he did He did actually go go to the Beatles and said, Either I did it, I made a huge mistake, didn't I? And they went, yes, you did. He said, you couldn't recommend another <laughs> another band, could you, that you, you, you like, that you would uh, want to recommend. And he recommended the Rolling Stones. They recommended the Rolling Stones. So he he did finally, you know. Yeah. You know, clawed it did, back did a bit. work out, yes. Clawed back, you're quite right. <laughs> He <laughs> uh, was a lovely man, and it was a, so. There again, you know, you don't wait for the phone to ring. Make the make the call is is is, is the answer, isn't it? Definitely, yes. Mm. As I've uh, found out, we've getting in contact with you. Yes, yeah. exactly so. Because people can only say no. E exactly. And if you ask nicely, there's no, no there's no, and they say no nicely, there's no problem, is there? Yeah, no problem at all. No. no problem at all. But like you say, you know, you you've got uh, many strings to your bow. You know, actor, writer, singer, and a TV presenter. You know, a jack of all trades, basically. Ooh, you, you could make say <laughs> Renaissance man, I think. Jack of all <laughs> trades. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I've just been very lucky, and I, and 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 I've been lucky to 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 do what I want to do. And that's that's the, one of the one of the greatest things in anybody's life is to have choice, and I'm, I've been very lucky that you know it is me that makes the choices. Sometimes they've been wrong, but that doesn't matter. There was still choice as opposed to being driven to to do something. And, and many of us uh, are in that position. We'd love to do something else. We'd love to um, I don't know fly away in our imagination and become whatever that that idea is uh, um, but many of us don't have the opportunity to escape from you know the reality of our lives which is you know looking after a family paying the bills and all the rest of it and uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm I'm particularly lucky I think I think probably the luckiest person on the planet quite frankly possibly, possibly. I think I am I'm, I'm, I'm married to the most delightful delightful human being my children love me. Um, I have friends that love me, I, and I think that's the uh, that's the nicest thing of, of all, really. Um, 
you can have you can have all the money in the world but if you don't have people who care about you you you, you have nothing to be on your deathbed as, as you know as rich as Croesus lying on your deathbed and nobody could give a fuck whether you you, you live or die you know, you've you've failed as a human being haven't you to be impoverished and to have the room full of people who fucking love you beyond belief you've won definitely very wise words definitely um so if you hadn't have left new zealand back in was it 1964 you said 64 yeah 64 what do you think you would have ended up doing if you hadn't have gone down the path that you have? I, I have no idea. Um, I have no idea. I would have. I would have. I would have. Con- I would have continued writing songs. Uh, I know that because I because you, I just love writing songs. I love. I love singing. Um, singing is uh, is is uh, the pu- the purest art form <coughs> in the world because it comes directly from you and. Uh, and doesn't need you don't need you don't need musicians behind you you don't need a canvas you don't need any instrumentation you don't need anything else except your voice and um, and uh, it's therefore the, the you know the number one of all art forms of the purest art form um, and I believe it began singing and in, uh, began and, and entered into the the human consciousness uh, from a, the simple fact of a mother cooing to a baby, maybe two hundred thousand years ago, hundred thousand years ago, eighty thousand years ago, at some point, the mother picked up the child and went, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think that's where it came from, and I, it's, uh, it's such a such a lovely origin of of, uh, of an art form, isn't it? And uh, singing is much easier than people. Um, believe people have uh, want to sing and they don't have the confidence to do so and they tell they tell everybody that they're tone deaf and all the rest of it singing is no it's not about the, the chest and it's not about the throat and the vocal cords it's about the ear all you're doing is making a sound so when the sound leaves you your body and it comes out through your mouth it must fall on your ear your own ear pres- Exactly the way you want it to fall on your ear, and and it's it, and that's all there is to singing. It's such a simple kind of realization. It's a bit like j- jumping into the swimming pool. You're afraid you'll drown, and then you jump in one day, and you discover it's a wonderful medium. It's supportive, and you don't have to fight this the water anymore because you're going to float, and it's. And all that fear—it happened to me once in Morocco. I dived into a swimming pool. I have to—I have to say, I had had a jazz cigarette before I did this. <laughs> and I d- d- dived into the swimming pool, <coughs> and suddenly I realised how buoyant this water was, and I was free, and I was flying underwater, and all that—all that—I I used to fight the water. I was a good swimmer, but I was always fighting the water. And suddenly I realised I didn't have to do that anymore. And singing's very similar to that. You, you, it's it, uh, You no longer have to to fight to pitch or to uh, perform. You don't have to perform. All you have to do is make a, a beautiful noise, and and it's you know it's all over. Well, that was uh, quite a good explanation for uh, that question. Thank you very much for that. So, of course, you know, you're, uh, one, one of the biggest successes in your life, I suppose, is Rocky Horror. I mean, it's, mm. it's weird, it's wonderful, it's flamboyant. How does a man think up of an idea like that for a musical? Where did all that come from? Well, I'd been, I'd, I'd, I was a, my, my son Linus had just been born and I was, I, I was sitting at home and somebody asked me if I'd go and entertain um, the crew at EMI Studios for their Christmas party, and uh, and I, I was at that point in my life where I was having to decide, with Linus being born, whether I was going to stay in the world of show business or come go back to New Zealand and get a proper job. Because as far as I was concerned, I now had a a responsibility, a real responsibility, and uh, I know I wasn't going to be one. I didn't want to be one of those people actors that would you know did sit, sit around at home getting one job a year maybe you know one job every two years because that's the, yeah, the harsh reality waiting for the phone to ring again and I and I so I thought I'd, what I'll do is I'll use this evening at EMI Studios this Christmas show to see if I can win these people over 
I've, I've, they gave me, I'm going to have about 15, 20 minutes. So I cobbled some jokes together and I wrote a song called Science Fiction Double Feature. And I said to them, you know, that I know they make the films, these are the kinds of films I like. And when that was over, and it was, it was a successful evening, and um, I, I went home much happier. Um, uh, a friend of mine was, I w was with me at the time, and I, I said, I think I'd like to write a musical about about science fiction and B-movies, um, all that stuff you watch late, we all watched late at night, because television used to shut down about 12, 12, 31 o'clock uh, in those days, and, and in that midnight hour, they used to show the crap movies, the B-movies, yeah. which I loved, and it was, you know, it was only, you know, it was only, you know, people like me, drunks and insomniacs who were watching, that was their audience, you know. So they didn't bother putting on good stuff, but I used to adore it, and I loved the, I loved the unconscious humour, um, in the unintended humour, in the in the uh, in, in the B movies, especially sci-fi, people becoming very serious about you know, um, and with heavy clumsy lines, and the more serious they become, the the the, the clumsier the line, the funnier it became, and I and all that was uh, was part of my drive. And he said, okay, and he went off to open up, up a recording studio. And in the meantime, I got a job at the Royal Court Theatre in a Sam Shepard play um, with Jim Sharman, who directed uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And, uh, and while I was there, I, I said, I'm writing this little musical that's amusing me. Perhaps, you know, they'd like to, like to listen to it by them. They, I mean, Rich, Richard Hartley and Jim. Richard came along very reluctantly. Um, he was. He, 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 we worked together now for over forty-five years. Never had a crossword between us. He's a lovely, lovely man. And the, um, he came along very reluctantly. And I sang them science fiction double feature and a few other songs that I'd had in the drawer and a bit of had a bit of dialogue and roughly the kind of characters. And uh, Jim went away. And he, I got a phone call about two weeks later. And he said they've asked me to do another another play at the Royal Court in the downstairs theatre and I've said I will as long as I can have three weeks fun upstairs before I do that and we're on I said so I need another 20 pages by the end of the week and another three songs blah 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 and it went from there um, and the nice thing was that it, it all kind of happened uh, without anybody anybody saying oh, this is going to be a hit or this is going to do that it really was a little bit of juvenile fun and as such, it had no portentousness. It was wasn't it, it wasn't heavy or pretentious or 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 trying to be something. We never tried to sell this as a hit or anything else. It was we were really just having this three weeks fun, and that's what we thought we would have three weeks. Because who was it going to? Who was this bit of nonsense going to appeal to? Seventy-two people a night, well, sixty-two people per night, because all we could get in the room. Absolutely sold out. Packed out. The word of mouth was phenomenal. We extended for another two weeks, five weeks. We broke off for a, a three-week period of time. Julie Covington, our first Janet, went to work at the National, and we recast um, the, the role of Janet. And then we moved down to the King's Road, and of course it ran for seven years in London from that moment on. Um, and and within another strange thing was that within a year we were allowed to make this movie. Not only were we allowed to make the movie, but the, the director of, of the stage show, Jim Sharma, was allowed to direct the movie. Not only that, we were all allowed to play our roles. Generally, when 20th Century Fox or Hollywood picks up um, you know, a, 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 a piece of work, they generally, you know, the, the, the regional actors generally get lost in the shuffle because they want to recast it, you know, to fit into the Hollywood scheme of things. Their insistence on an American couple for Brad and Janet was, was, was excellent because by the time we went to shoot the movie, we had done the, we'd all been doing the, the stage show for eight, 18 months and, and we knew our roles and we knew who we were and, and this, this other couple that came in, Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, they, they came in as strangers and so that, that couple really were entering into a world that already ex pre-existed before they entered and it, it really added another dimension to it. Um, 
and uh, it was just delightful. It was the first movie for most of us, and uh, we just, once again we had such fun because we were we were like kids allowed to play, you know. And it was fantastic. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it really does show in the film. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I've never, I've never really liked musicals. For some reason, I don't know. I've just never been a musicals person. But uh, when I first watched Rocky Horror, the, the film version, um, maybe about the age of 12 or 13, I loved it. And so much so, not too long ago, I went on karaoke a bit drunk with a friend and we both did Time Warp and apparently my uh, my riff raff rendition was uh, quite good. Excellent, excellent <laughs> you're not, and you're modest as well I like this <laughs> Quite good, yeah, I, I mean I was uh, I had had a bit to drink so it might, it might have been Sang terrible. the shit out of it didn't you? Yeah it did, <laughs> well the pub loved it so <laughs> that's, that's always the main thing as long as people have uh, a good time and I guess that's what Rocky Horror is all about, having a good time having a laugh and not really caring about things it's, it's, it is, it It really was intended, I, but one of the, like, the happy accidents, uh, once again, is, is, is the fact that people again and again come up to me and say this was, it was so important in their lives, especially if they've been going through um, uh, gender problems uh, or, or sexuality, going through puberty and all the rest of it, adolescence, and feeling lonely and marginalised, and they discover that they're not alone, and uh, that was, that's been lovely. That kind of leads me on to my next question, really, because, you know, like you said, the, the stage version came out in 1973, the original, yes. and the film in 75. Um, nothing like it had been done before, and obviously it's, it's got a message of, you know, it's, it's okay to be what you want to be, really. And um, like you say, with, you know, th there are people out there who are struggling with sexuality and, and, and gender and mm -hmm. that. Do you think that the film was ahead of its time and it's kind of flew the flag a bit and, and said to society you know it's okay to be different I think it was I think it was part of a the part of a, of, a, of what was happening at, at that time um, the word zeitgeist springs to mind um, if it had been if the show had been a, a year earlier or a year later who knows whether it would have had the same success I think it came came just at the right time <coughs> but it was um, the ball had already been started rolling with glam rock and, um, and the Stonewall um, movement, and, and, um, and, and especially in, in Great Britain, we have the very brave people putting their heads up over the parapet. Um, Ian McKellen, uh, in particular, you know, he was a he, he was a stalwart. He stood up and said, you know, uh, you know, un, um, unapologetically that I'm a gay man, and my role in life is to is to become um, accepted. For, for what I am by default, and uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm I will not be ashamed of what I am by default, you know. And he 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 was out there and, and very bravely so, and and so you know, I can't take any credit for for you know um, changing anything particularly because that wasn't the intention of the show. That was all. It was all very happy that somehow rather it. Um, it touched a nerve somewhere. Um, one of the interesting things sociologically at the time was when, when uh, uh, Tim Curry um, strutted down the catwalk as on his entrance of, of Sweet Transvestite, um, the audience, the women looked up, and in those days it was a little bit more of a, a, a grotesque circus in many ways. It wasn't quite as, as, as it's become. Was, and then, so the makeup was a little more garish, and it was, a, and and Tim's fishnets were always ripped, and and, and in the in the in his, the crook of his elbow, he had a couple of plasters and and, and and blood running down as if he'd jacked up some heroin or something. Rather, it was rough around the edges kind of stuff, but the women in the audience went, hello, and they found themselves attracted to this creature, which surprised them and this is the other surprising thing was that the guys sitting next to them with the woman would look, would look at Tim going down and go I see what you mean and surprise themselves they the audience became surprised that they were attracted to this creature and that was an interesting um, shift um, because he should have been repellent and uh, he wasn't he was one of those he was one of those um, awful people that you hate to love or love to hate you know Cruella de Vil to yeah. some extent you know 
I think uh, we're always drawn to the baddies. I mean, you know, if, if he was uh, repulsive, I don't think so many people would have dressed up as him, but so many people still continue to dress up as Frankenfurt and all the other characters yes. as well. So I said earlier on that uh, I'm a huge fan of the Crystal Maze. I mean, um, I'm trying to think when I first started watching it. Um, I wasn't uh, old enough to see originally on Channel 4, unfortunately, but as you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. it's never been off the telly. I think I started watching it about the late 90s. Um, it's a show that I've pretty much bored all of my friends and my, <laughs> my parents about about to sit and watch it over and over again, and they still continue to have to do it now. Um, but how did that job come about? How did you make that transition from actor to TV presenter? Um, it was I was I was asked to um, go along and see these people to talk about it, and uh, I'd been trying to raise some money for um, for rehab. For people, there's a there's a there's a hole in the net with uh, with re rehab and people who uh, want to get off the drugs and or off whatever the booze and drugs, and there's a there's a, a, a hole in the net, people because you can't get anybody into rehab unless they really want to go into rehab. That's the first first step, and then when they've decided to, that they really want to, you know, turn their lives around, they can't because there isn't the money. To um, to support this change, and uh, they have to apply for, for for help from the government, um, and that takes time, and time isn't on the side of the addict because you know, a week later, the moments passed and they're recidivistic. They're they're back and doing what they were doing before, and their lives are still spiraling down downward. So I thought, I wanted to I wanted to start a charity. That would, that would help um, have a, a, a pool of money, a kitty, if you were, that we could, the minute they said, I really want to go into rehab or want to change my life, we would have this money to, to give to them and we would reclaim the money later on off the government. I, that was, what, that was my, my naive thinking. And I, and I thought, I, if I'm going up with a begging bowl, I, people need to know who I am. And people didn't know who I was. Um, I had friends who'd been on television, seriously good friends, and, and, and lots and lots of time on television. I'd be walking down the road with them, and uh, people would recognize them. And I, I always thought, God, I'm so lucky. They've got to put up with that every day, day you know. I'm so lucky. I'm, I'm still successful. I'm in the theater, I'm making films, and I'm making money from Rocky and all the rest of it. I'm, I'm successful in, my, in, in this same world that they're in, but I have anonymity, aren't I lucky? And what I realized when I wanted to, to get the be begging bowl out for this charity, that I needed to raise my profile. So that was what um, allowed me to make a, the, this decision, this choice to turn my life into a different, down a different road, because I remember once um, I was sitting uh, with my wife, uh, um, just before we went, um, you know, the first episodes came out. I said, "You do understand that our lives are going to change because we're no longer going to be able to sit in this restaurant, um, you know, without people nudging and looking over." And he goes, "Because once you're on television for three weeks in a row, you've been in their houses. They feel they know you. Once once you've been doing it for four or five years, you know, it's it's you, it's really cemented. You, you're you're known." And your world is slightly different, um, and it was a big, it was a big, rather challenging decision. That was a big, the ch most challenging part of it. Um, and I, I so I went along, and they, they uh, we did a. I was supposed to do the keys to Fort Boyard. Yeah, I wasn't supposed to be doing the Crystal Maze. He, that's what we were supposed to be doing, the English version of the keys to Fort Boyard. And so we did. Uh, we went out to uh, strangely once again to EMI Studios, and we did a. We, they had a mock-up kind of set, and um, a scaffolding and whatnot. And uh, and I did a um, a kind of pilot uh, of what we might be doing, and uh, whether I, or not I was the right person to be doing it. And on the first day, um, they dressed me up in some kind of medieval kind of looking shit and all the rest of it. And, I ran around and I was dreadful and it was it was awful. I was so depressed. The the, the, the producer came up to me and said, um, "I need to speak to you in your dressing room, in the dressing room after you go go and get changed." And I'll speak to you in the dressing room. I went into the dressing room, got changed, 
ran out the back door, got in my car, and I drove 40 miles home to down into into Surrey, and um, and I, I locked, I got into into, to, into the into the kitchen and uh, shut the doors and whatnot, and I just I'd just taken off. Uh, about a, about an hour later, so I knock on the door, and there's the producer at the door. And he said, came into the kitchen, he sat down, he said, oh, it was, what we did today was all wrong, wasn't it? He said, we, we, we hired you because we like you, Richard. And what we had today was we were making you somebody else. I want you to come in tomorrow, you pick your own clothes. And he said, I want you to come in tomorrow, and I want to see, I want to see that smile that you have that's so wonderful and generates a lot of, you know, people like that. And I like that and all the rest. So I just want you to come and be happy and be yourself. And uh, so I, I dressed in a yellow shirt and, and yellow trousers and put a bit of makeup on and went out and I had a completely like, a different day. And at the end of the day, um, uh, Channel 4 were there. And a little while later, they, they gave the thumbs up. They said, we're going we're gonna to give, give you the budget. And, um, and it'll, be, it'll be going out at 8.30 uh, in the autumn season on a Thursday night. A time slot and everything. And so they turned round to the French people who did, you know, designed the, the ideas of the Crystal Maze and it's at the of Fort Boyard. And I said, "Well, that's great. They've got the time slot and everything." And they went, "But the fort will not be ready." He said, "But don't, don't, be, don't do that." But the fort will not be ready. I said, "No, I've just spent a hundred and twenty thousand pounds of my own money for that, you know, that little pilot show, and they've accepted it. We've got the budget. We've got the time. You mustn't do this." And well, it would not be ready. Uh, so they flew to France and sat down for two days, and came up with the crystal maze. And I, it's the better show, and uh, and it's the better show simply because the keys to Fort Boyard was thought out too cleverly, and it was like a stodgy cake. And what we went did with the crystal maze is we went to the same kitchen and all the same ingredients, and we made a souffle. And they had a stodgy cake, and we had a souffle, uh, and and it, and it, it was it, it was that that made it work, and to to a large extent. Also, in the keys to Fort Bayard, at the end of the day, they, we we're, we're supposed to believe, you know, suspend our disbelief and believe that you know maybe they might get thrown to the fucking lions. That's never going to happen. We're never going to see a contestant thrown no. to the lions. So th all that tension is missing because it ain't going to work that way. No. And. Um, um, what we uh, they also the the, the 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 French people said we had to play the same games every 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 week. So for 13, 13 episodes, we're supposed to be the audience supposed to be seeing the same games, and our our producer said no, we're going to have different games. We might play them once or twice or three times, maybe at a, a push four times through the whole entire season. But that way, we keep introducing new games. People get excited. If they still see an old, an, a game that's been played before, it'll only be played once or twice before, and that will enable them to go, oh, you've got to do that. And once again, they become, the audience becomes complicit. They, they lock into it, and, and they're, watching, they're watching the players struggling, and at home, they, they get there's a frustration, uh, the point of view, because they get, it's behind the door. It's behind. For God's sake, it's behind the door. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it was it was rather it was rather good. And uh, as I said before, it was a, it was a lovely trouble for him. There wasn't a single person on the set that was a bother. You only need one, but you know, a black hole. That's all you need. Just one person. Do me kind of black hole, mean spirited or whatnot. It was long, long days. We stood, they the, the crew used to get there about six in the morning. I turn up about eight o'clock. And by ten o'clock we'd we'd turn over, and we'd be still turning over at ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night, freezing cold. Always done in the winter time, uh, for some reason or other. Um, so you didn't need, you really didn't need any negative kind of characters or personality, you know, to be involved with that. And there were, you know, we're talking about thirty or forty people on, you know, running around, crew and fitters and um, electrics and you know all that sort of lighting. Um, it was rather lovely, and it, and, it, and it really shown through on the program and uh, the fact that so many people enjoy it. Um, so, like you were on about earlier on about the uh, the ad libbing and all that to the camera and everything, and the, the, the whole mumsy thing as well was completely just like a something that you said and it stuck. Exactly. So we, 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 that was lovely. Sandra Karen. She was the she was the sister of uh, Alma Cogan, the the, 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 the 
very famous singer of the 50s, so the, um, a lovely lady, and she, she came along for, for, to play just the once. You know, that was going to be one, or maybe twice, uh, but in the series. But then the first time somebody went in, I had to give them some money to, you know, cross the palm of the, of the gypsy, because that's what she was. She was just the gypsy, you know, going across, across the gypsy palm with silver. And I said, well, do be careful, my mumsy, won't you? She's had a little, you know, bit like that's too much of this last night, you know. And once I'd said she was mumsy, well, she had to stay, didn't she? And uh, we, so we, we played on that and kept, uh, you know, ad-libbing a little bit more each time. It worked really well, I think, and uh, I think the, the the thing that was also funny as well for the, for the grown-ups and that is that it was quite obvious that the two of you were about the same age, really. But you know, to the kids, it was like, oh, you know, that really is his mum, and they, they really live there and make crystals and the games and everything. Yes, it was uh, they good did. Fun. They did. I used to get I used to get lots of lovely letters from the mm. kids. I'm, I'm just, I was I was getting something like uh, I had twenty thousand, ten or twenty thousand letters uh, per season. Um, which I couldn't answer. Actually, I had to get my. I, I did a. It wasn't really fair to the to people writing in, but I, I did a. I got a stereotypical letter and reproduced it and, and signed it off. Uh, and my son did all the put all the envelopes together and licking and stamping and all the rest of it. It was difficult dealing with that actually. I hadn't, I hadn't factored that into the change in my life either. Um, but it was lovely, you know, to say. Um, Dear Richard O'Brien, I am written to you. It was always a double T. Yeah. I'm written to you because you are a cool dude. And I, I used to get these lovely letters. Some of us thought I had used to keep the crystals down the end of the garden. I used to find them in the garden. I, that was, it did fire their imaginations. I think that's what the show is all about. It was, it was very imaginative. It was it was different. It was you know it was an adventure and there was nothing else like it at the time and I don't think there's been there have been shows that have tried mm. to recreate that but I don't think they've captured it um, in fact we did actually have Fort Boyard come to the UK a couple of years after um, so in, in Crystal Maze of course um, you know you had contestants on and some of them weren't brilliant at the games and as a viewer you'd be shouting at the telly and trust me I did numerous times did it used to wind you up as well when someone was being rubbish um, there was uh, there was one incident particularly where the, the game was that there was uh, a room oblong room and running um, it was split into two halves but the, the, the half on the door was a space and then there was some chicken wire in front of them and behind the chicken wire there was a turntable and in the chicken wire there was a little hole and the, uh, on the turntable on the far side of the turntable was a crystal and you had to bring the crystal the turntable around to the hole in the chicken wire so you could yeah I remember the game yeah yeah now the only way of getting that around was to what you had on on, on the contestant side and on the floor in three pieces was a crank handle you had to put the crank handle together, the three pieces, make the crank handle, stick it through uh, the, the chicken wire into into the little keyhole slot that the, 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 so you could turn the the the, the, the crank handle, and the, the turntable would would revolve. It's not rocket science, but you know, it's time consuming. And what have I got to do? Oh, ooh, what's that on the floor over there? Oh, cool. I'm, oh, we've got to put it together. Oh yeah, I've got to put it together. Now what do I do? Oh, you, there's a little hole over there. You can put it through there. And slot over there. So that's the kind of way it works. But this girl went in, and she looked at the turntable. She looked at the at the uh, crank handle in three pieces on the floor, and she went oh, and picked up the three pieces, and threw them over the over the over the chicken wire fence. And we all go, and what was that all about? <laughs> it was the only time. It was the only time we we redid a we redid a, did a game. Um, we never did, did, did we, we, you know, we never allowed anybody to go back and have another go. But on that one particular occasion, we had to because, you know, otherwise, what on earth was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> there was yeah. some uh, brilliant displays of uh, <laughs> intelligence. On the said, they were under pressure, yeah, of course. Definitely, yeah. And, and not only that, not only under the pressure of playing the game, they're under the pressure of being on, on being on television. Mm -hmm, definitely. And, I, and they would say to me, you know, that we, we, I'd go up and meet the, meet the contestants the night before because we were shooting it out on, on a, an aircraft hangar out at North Weald. Yeah, right. You know, two o'clock on the M25, and um, so I'd go up and meet the the the, uh, the contestants and have, have, in fact, have dinner with them, generally speaking. But 
the day before, the people who'd got the contestant come to visit and they come up to me and they say, "Oh, you're going to have a lot of fun tomorrow, Richard. There's one one chap. He's really re you're going to re really spark off off him. He's really funny and witty, you know." And I'd meet them that the, the night before, and we'd swap a few kind of jokes around the tea table, so that break down, I break down the kind of barrier between yeah. me and the contestants and make them feel really at home and at ease. But the next day, you see, there's a thing called red light fever. And, um, you know, you're suddenly on the set and the lights come up and you're ready to go rock and roll and, you know, the, the red light goes up, you know. And suddenly this person who's garrulous and kind of supposed to be a wit, you know, got his hands clamped by his side and he hardly can, can hardly speak because, you know, the, of the, uh, of, of the, just the, the fear, basically. And, and, and um, so that was a difficulty. But I used to stay with the contestants all day long. I never, I never used to go and play and then go and sit in my caravan on my own, whatever, you know, you know. I made sure that I stayed with them all day long so that I could say to them, you know, that you made a dog's dinner of that, you know, a child of three could have, could have won that, you know, you know yeah. what the hell are you thinking about? I couldn't have said that if, if we didn't have that familiarity between us. That was essential that we did have a familiarity that I wa it, it wasn't me and them. Uh, I was I was with them completely, but pretended not to be when I looked down to, into the lens and I was talking to the people at home. It was then it was the audience and me, but I I, I was very aware that I I, I didn't want to have I didn't want to have people who were just running around in a in a blind state. I wanted to be able to say, oh for God's sakes, what the I couldn't use the F word, but you know, I wanted to be able to be able to say that to them without them becoming offended. Yeah. You know, that was essential. Yeah. I mean, there was, there were some great moments. I mean, one in particular sticks in my mind and it's, it's been reposted on YouTube millions of times, watched millions of times over. There was a game where you had to put a jigsaw puzzle together mm -hmm. and there was a code on it. And then there was a massive grid of numbers on the wall mm -hmm. and you had to find the one with the code on it. And this guy couldn't find it. And I think it was you three and everyone's screaming, U3 and you go it's U3 it's that one on the wall and even the computer goes U3 and I think you end up storming into the cell and showing him where the, the button is and going it's that one <laughs> which is a great moment <laughs> it was it was there was there was, a, there was a, a lot of freedom in that actually I, I was and, and then the, the nice thing also of course is because we're pre-recording yeah is that you can you can go a little bit further because we know we always have the you know the off switch the edit button if we, if we want to yeah definitely yeah. definitely um so doing the show i mean what, did you have a favorite zone out of the, the four? I, I used to like i used to like aztec simply because we, it was so freezing cold on the on the, on the set we were. It was generally, you know, freezing, and, uh, and there was no heating in, the, in mm. an aircraft hangar. And we had all these big gas heaters blowing stuff around, but of course they would have to be shut off when you're turning over. And so, when, at least when we got to Aztec, it, it felt warmer because the the lights were more yellow and bright, and we had the sand, and it seemed mm. more summery. But we, I'd be talking to the people. You see the steam coming out yeah, of my mouth. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> that, yeah. Sometimes you take your jacket off and put sunglasses on, but really you were you were freezing the whole time. Exactly yeah. so. And was there a game that you loved, if you can remember a particular... I can remember one game, one. Uh, but, but this is another interesting thing, because when the first the first season, they, 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 they had four sources of, of, of games mm -hmm. in-house yeah. to, to a, a very, very small degree. Um, a, a place called Games Workshop that uh, used to come up with ideas for games. Mensa, they approached that. And there was, they, so they'd have these people... Um, supplying games and Games Workshop um, were fine for the first kind of se season and second season but then they, they said actually that we're no longer going to do that. you've got to take all our games that we're you know you can't cherry pick anymore you know because that's what we do we say that's a great game that's a great game we won't want that one but um, they, 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 they wanted, they were putting the effort and they said, well, you've got to take, you know, take all our ideas, uh, otherwise uh, you can't take any at all. And at the same time, because we've been doing this, the, the show for two seasons, uh, we kind of knew what worked and what didn't work. And uh, being t some of the games were purely televisual. It wasn't really so much about 
the, the, the game on the day for the player, it was about the game for the audience to be able to look at it and, and be able to ex work it out themselves what's supposed to happen. That's called televisual, in other words, if, you, if they can't understand what's going on, they're going to lose interest. And uh, all those factors were combined and people, riggers and, and people working on the set would suddenly come up with a game. And, and they were, became rather, rather interesting. For there was a little maze on, 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 on four chords. It was a tray, basically, a huge tray with a maze in it and a, and a ball in the maze, a ball in the maze. And it was suspended, it was, each corner of, of, of this tray was, it was suspended on four ropes and these four ropes allowed it to, you to, uh, there was a, a lever which allowed you to, to um, turn the tray, um, tilt it in kind of like corner-wise directions, yeah. edge-wise directions, and 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 it was it was really really beautiful and it was so simple and so divine it just just turn, put on two ropes you put in two ropes and you could manipulate the the level of the, and the angle of the tray and get the silver ball to run through it i thought that was i thought it was delicious it i remember was the so game yeah simple. yeah it's a good game good game yeah. that one there's quite a few like that with mazes actually uh, mm. balls seem to remember and uh, of course you know the show was massively successful um you know for channel four made you a household name um we hit we hit the five million mark i five think million. season season two but halfway wow. through season two or a quarter way through season two we uh, break that five million barrier i don't think there's uh, many game shows that can claim that really. i know and also i i was i was asked to go up to the bbc they wanted me to do something while we were while we were doing crystal maze um, 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 Janet Street Porter asked me up, and of course they they do they look at all these demographics of people that on mm -hmm. work in television. They have these books that have nine o'clock, what's happening at nine o'clock, right across the station, the, the different channels, and you know where who's getting the audience. And she went, look at this, Richard. She said, look, nine o'clock, the BBC nine o'clock news. You start at eight thirty, you inherit nothing. There's nothing on on Channel Four before you go. There are no viewers whatsoever. You know there are, but you know nothing really. And you come on and you pick up a million viewers, 8.30. 9.30, BBC News comes on at 9 o'clock. It's never happened before. Your audience figures improve during the, B the BBC's 9 o'clock news. That has never, ever happened before. I went, oh, I didn't know about this. It was, it was astonishing. It was, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, you did four series and then you decided to call it a day. Yes. Why did you decide to do I that? knew if I stayed there much longer I wouldn't be allowed to be an actor too much. You know, I, I was going to become uh, a kind of television personality and I didn't want to, I didn't want the, uh, I, wanted to I wanted to quit while I, I was still ahead and I didn't want, um, I didn't want, uh, I didn't want to find, wake up one day and they say, it's um, it's no longer pulling in the audience that that we imagined, and uh, we're going to move it to to the afternoon, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, and I didn't want that to happen. There's no reason why it should, but there's no reason why it shouldn't have done either. And they wouldn't contract me for, um, you know, more than one season. I was always contracted one season at a time, and I said to them, you know, you could turn around to me and say it's been great, Richard. You know, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna recast. You know, give give them some new blood into it. And they said we wouldn't do that. I said no, but you could, couldn't you? And they, well, no, we wouldn't do. It. And I said no, but it might happen. It could happen. In which case, I want to, I want to be the one that's making the decision. And so I stopped doing it, and I went out. I went uh, left there. I went out to Australia, made a move. I did, I did three movies, and then it kind of rose straight, uh, straight after that, which I don't think I would have been allowed to do if I'd stayed on. I think the time was over for me to be doing that on television. Yeah, I suppose what was it? It was four years, which um, might not seem a lot when you say four years, but I suppose it was a long time that you did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was I, on. T it was on t twice a week, yeah. wasn't it? They, re they started repeating it because mm -hmm. it went out at eight thirty, and they they and the following week they put it on Tuesday for six o'clock or something on again for the for the, this. Um, yeah, because they realised that it was a big captive child children's audience. And I love that little sketch you did when you left when you rode out the maze with Mumsy on a Harley Davidson yeah. I think that was a stroke of genius and you left a, a note for Ed on the table 
something like uh, don't forget to pay the milkman or something like that <laughs> I remember that that was, that was good um, so of course like you know they, they, they cast Ed Tudor after you do, do you think he was a good choice uh, as your replacement um, I think you're on a bit of a hiding to nothing aren't you really when you've, when you've got something when you're taking over from somebody it's, uh, it's, it's always going to be difficult um, I, the, the, the thing about Ed coming in you see he didn't have the, um, the luxury of, of being able to be there at the, at the beginning and, and go through all the um, kinds of ups and downs and the discovery of how, what would work and what wouldn't work and, uh, and, 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 and I, I was lucky to be part of that kind of creative process at the beginning and, uh, and, and it was already kind of set in, not particularly set in stone, but you know, the, yeah. the, the, the formula was there and he had to kind of just slot into that, which isn't as, isn't as comforting as, as, as it might be. Um, he had a, a bit of a struggle with that, I think. Truthfully. Yeah, I think he did a good job. I just, unfortunately, he finished. He's, uh, he's, he's a lovely eccentric yeah, human being. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. I did see one of Forgive his. Forgive me, uh, but you are. I'm sorry, Ed. You are <laughs> a lovely eccentric human being. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, I did see one of his live shows a few years ago, and it, it was it was fantastic. He's, he's what you say eccentric and wonderful. Mm. Um, but uh, sadly, the show ended two series later, so I don't think he really got a, a fair mm. crack of the whip, really, unfortunately. But uh, there we go. And I, he actually played Riffraff in at one yes, point in the live version yeah, yeah. of the show yeah. of Rocky Horror. Yes, yes. So that's uh, a bit of a coincidence. I wonder if that might have had something to do with the, the casting. I don't. I, don't I, I have no idea. But people have often said to me, "Why did you get cast?" And uh, and and, um, and I said, "I I think it's because I, th- I I don't know why they even thought about me." Yeah. To ask me along to, I don't know where that thought came from because all I'd done is it was in theatre and film. I hadn't; they didn't really know me, and I, I don't know how my name got into the into the original kind of thought of who might do the show. And I said, well, I think it's a bit like Dungeons and Dragons, and they wanted a, a dungeon master, and that way I can see why they might have come my way. And I said that to the producers, and they said, no, no, nothing to do with that whatsoever. And I said, well, why? And I, I don't. Think they gave me a, a clear answer. Mm. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Definitely. And actually, you saying that didn't didn't you appear in a Dungeons and Dragons film and play a maze master in it? I think I did. Yes, I, I think did. you did. I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. And uh, I mean, of course, the, the show's recently been revived. They did a one-off special with Stephen Merchant. I loved your cameo in that when you played the computer. Oh yes. Yeah. Well, it was a bit, bit of just it was just nice to to um, to be there, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't think they could have done it without having a little nod to the uh, the past, really. Um, no. With, with it. And uh, it's it's come back as a a full series now. I'm, I'm sure you're aware with uh, Richard Iowardi. Have you yes. seen the new one at all? I've seen one of them. Um, I my my feeling is, and I, I don't mean to. I, I hope I don't, I don't mean to be uh, denigrating or, or, or you know. Um, cold uh, you know um, a wet flannel or whatever um, we had the luxury once again of not being confined by health and safety today they have health and safety uh, the world has health and safety uh, you know you can no longer you can no longer em- employ a painter to paint your house and he gets uh, bring a ladder along the scaffolding has to go into place yeah. you know harnessing hard hats all the rest of it and and that's that's all over the world and uh, what we what we had, I think we wouldn't be allowed to do the show that we were doing. We had people on a on a revolving pole going over over water, slipping off the pole and hitting their hip on the side of the pole. You know, you, you know, it's, it was it was precarious and dangerous, but it gave it a little ed- it gave it an edge, and it was a, f- a faster show as a result of that because we didn't we weren't con- confined by safety uh, issues. And I think that that I think to some extent it's ham- from my point of view that's hampered the show um, because it you know it was it was just rollicking and a bit more free. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that one, definitely, definitely. Um, so you know, with, with a new series being made, the live experiences as well, the mm-hmm. one in London, the one in Manchester, the old ones are still being repeated constantly on Challenge as they have been since the show originally ended. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think the show is so popular for a game show, and, and why it has such a cult following? Um, I th- I think it's because you can you 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 can pick up um, anywhere you like with the show, and and it, it's it's not a result of um, you couldn't do it with a with a with a with a pub quiz show, which mm-hmm. most of them are. Doesn't yeah. matter what they are. It's kind of like question shows and. and uh, 
because once you've heard the answer and you've seen the, you know, you've seen the, seen the answer and, and you know the answer, it becomes, it becomes less interesting. With, with uh, the crystal maze, as it was, it was a little bit more disjointed than that. It didn't rely on, uh, on an answer or knowledge. Uh, it, 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 it depended upon going in to win this game and getting out alive, basically, wasn't it? Um, I think I think it's that, um, and if new new generations, new people watch it, it's um, it's it's. As I say, if it was just a quiz show, mm-hmm. you, we can't we can't keep watching the same old quiz show all the time, and uh, because we we know the outcome. Um, with the Crystal Maze, you you're watching um, something a little bit more. A little more ragged than that, uh, and a little bit more kind of uh, immediate in some way. And it always it 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 maintains its immediacy um, through several viewings. I think somehow or other. I'm I, I don't know. I'm guessing actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, from my own personal experience, um, I've watched the old ones probably more than once all of them, that probably sounds a bit sad actually but um, I've always enjoyed it I just remember as a little kid loving it, I've grown up and love it, you know it's just, it's fun you know and that's that's what it's about and it is funny to watch people fall over it's mm-hmm. a bit sadistic really but and uh, you know like you know you and Ed both did a great job you know keeping it all together and, and making it an enjoyable watch so yeah, it was a, I, I, really, I really loved it, I was, I, I was given so much freedom <coughs> and, I think uh, that's what helped as well. I, 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 I think it did, and and I, and, um, and I I tried to be inventive with with the humour, you know, um, uh, and and push the envelope sometimes, you know. Um, I mean, for instance, you know, I turned to the camera with someone going right, you've got a schoolboy's chance in Alcatraz, you know, uh, which is when you think about it, it's a terribly rude line, isn't it? <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'd say to them, "You're going to cut that." Aren't you? Like, no, we'll keep that in. <laughs> they kept it. Was the, the, the yeah. little yeah. So there was something for the adults and the yeah. kids as well. Yeah, and there was the uh, the excitement music as well, the harmonica playing, <laughs> 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 which everyone seems to remember. Uh, whenever whenever the show is ever spoofed in in, in comedies, there's always the uh, the harmonica comes out. <laughs> In any of them, so in more recent years, um, what have you been up to? I mean, I understand you've you've moved back to New Zealand now. Yes, I've, we're fully domiciled in New Zealand now, and uh, unhappily so. Um, I've been doing a program out there called the DNA Detectives, where we um, we take people's DNA and then we we discover the, the various um, haplogroups and um, that they that they've um, have in their in their DNA makeup. And then we send them around the world to meet family that they've never heard of. Um, made have a, a great, 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 great grandfather in in common, shared. You know, uh, one person we send them back right to a, a place in Europe where we discovered his Neanderthal roots, and that's another interesting thing. Many Europeans, myself included, have Neanderthal um, uh, signatures in our in our DNA makeup. Uh, which is rather lovely because it means uh, I'm, I'm a Darwinist, unashamed, unapologetic Darwinist. We came out of Africa 60, 70, 80,000 years ago, whenever, and they moved out about 20,000 years, 30,000 years before we did, and settled in Europe. And when we got up, the Hermes sapiens got up into Europe, they crossbred with Neanderthals. Now, there's a, it's with the same family but a separate species. Generally, when that happens, you put a lion and a tiger together, you get a liger. The offspring are infertile, but with, with Neanderthal and, and, and Homo sapien, the offspring were obviously fertile because right across Europe, you know, I have a 2.006% Neanderthal uh, markings, um, and I loved that. I loved that I met some. I was able to meet some lovely, lovely people. Um, most most of the people we were selected in New Zealand had some sort of celebrity kind of background. And in the last series, um, a young girl came on who was a politician named Jacinda Ardern. And we sent Jacinda around the world. Well, when she came back, she was the Prime Minister of New Zealand, which she is today. Um, and that, you see, I, that, that was lovely. So I, I have, I've had a lot of, lot of fun. And it's not work, it's, not, it's, it's enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. Very, very lucky indeed. Mm. And, and is life treating you well? 
Oh, very much so. I, I, we live in a we live in a, 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 a down a dead end road, so there's no through traffic, and we look out over the, over the, the top end of the, the, the town on the harbour. Um, um, it's a demi paradise, as far as I'm concerned. We lock the front gate, and we say, "Fuck off, world." <laughs> <laughs> I I, uh, I guess you've earned it really over the years. Uh, it's, uh, I, I I don't know whether I've earned anything really. I just uh, once again I say I am the luckiest person in the world, and uh, I I never take that for granted. Never, no. Well, Richard, it's it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thank you, Jack. Yeah.